Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. Well, hey, welcome to Vox Church. If you're new, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. I am so grateful that you're with us today. God's doing a special work among us right now and uh, just honored, honored to be a part of it and to be a part of it with you. Was anybody encouraged by my wife's message last week? Blessed by that. If you didn't hear it, it's online. I encourage you, go back and listen. It's just a great word, powerful, powerful word, looking at the spiritual awakening that occurred in the city of Antioch. This week also begins signups for our reconciliation groups. We do various different groups throughout the year. These are intentionally smaller groups. Uh, they meet seven times, uh, made up of a diverse group of people, explore the idea of reconciliation and biblical diversity. Just awesome groups. I encourage you, if you're interested in that, uh, go and uh, sign up at the Next Steps table or just go to voxchurch.org. All the information is there, but those are going to be awesome. This also marks the last week of our teaching series where we've been looking at spiritual renewals throughout the Bible, starting all the way with Samuel in the Old Testament and moving up today, we'll be looking at the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. But it's also an important time for us because it marks six nights of seeking God, right? So tonight, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, 7 p.m. I encourage you to be a part of one or two or all of these nights. I'll be there every night. And we're going to be worshiping Jesus, seeking His face, and uh, let's see what the Lord does as His people set time aside, all right? And I know your favorite show's on that night, but um, you can look at the person next to you and tell them Hulu has everything. Just tell them they, it does. You can watch it later. I'm telling you, there's a way, all right? And so 11 words, 11 words can change your whole life, change your whole world. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's what we've been exploring these last six weeks, the truth of those words and how they manifest throughout history in the Scripture. So today we're going to look at Acts chapter 19, one of my favorite passages in the Scripture. It's a wild one. I'm telling you, as we dive into it, there is so much here, starting in verse 1. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. You can turn your person next to you and say, I've been to that church. Go ahead and just tell them, I've been to that church. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way uh, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that 
Handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish priest, high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And the number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What a wild passage of scripture, right? Today, I wanna speak to you under the subject, the few and the view bring the new. I may have been influenced by Dr. Seuss this week, I'm not sure, but the few and the view bring the new. Can you turn to the person next to you and just try out my title for me? The few, tell them, and the view bring the new. The few and the view bring the new. The few and the view bring the new. The few and the view bring the new. It's not as easy as I'm making it look. The few and the view bring the new. The few and the view bring the new. Let's pray. Let's open our hearts to the Lord. I think he has a word for you today. Father, I thank you for the presence of Jesus and for the house of God. I thank you that you're at work right now all across New England and beyond that you're doing something special right now in our midst and by your grace, you're enabling us to be a part of it. And so we just wanna say yes to that. And I pray that you would work today in profound, personal, supernatural ways in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Everybody wants change, right? Everybody wants to see something change. We want life to get better. We want things to expand. You wanna grow your business. You want to see your platform expand. You want to see your influence expand. I think Westerners and maybe Americans in particular, we love this idea of change. We love this idea of revolution, right? We are a nation born in revolution. And so being a revolutionary person and experiencing a revolution is something that's very appealing to us, something that's very interesting to us because revolution feels big. It feels exciting. It feels important. It affirms my value. I saw an advertisement this week for vegan collagen body cream, all right? Now, I'm not a body cream expert, but what the ad told me is that it was a revolutionary bottle of greatness, vegan collagen body cream. So someone figured out how to make a body cream out of genetically modified bacteria, and now that's a revolution. It feels like maybe we've got a little confused about a real revolution and what it looks like, right? If vegan collagen body cream is a revolution, then maybe we need a little education in what it means to experience revolution. Well, there's social revolution, there's political revolution, but what we've been looking at these last six weeks could really be categorized as spiritual revolution, where God transforms a community, a society, but it all begins with a heart transformation by the Holy Spirit. And so we've looked at the story of Samuel who brought the people to a return. You remember that? And then the story of Elijah where the fire of God fell and God became real to a people that he had become distant to in their minds. And then we looked at the story of Josiah. If you remember his story, he discovered the word in the basement of the temple and he reintroduced the word to the people and it brought a revolution, brought a revival. 
And then we looked at the New Testament, the book of Acts, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the church in Antioch. And these are just a few examples in Scripture of times of great revival and great revolution. And so today we find ourselves in Ephesus, in a spiritual renewal that changes the fabric of a city. Now, this was an incredibly influential city at the time that Paul was preaching there. It was the fourth largest city in the world. And if you know your history, Alexander the Great built up Ephesus as a significant city in that time. And the Temple of Artemis had been built there, which was one of the great seven wonders of the world. And so it was a significant place. It was a densely populated city. And so Paul enters the city, and this is a big deal. I mean, here comes the revolutionary, right? The apostle Paul. And it says that he finds some disciples, he starts talking with them, and right away the sparks start flying. The fireworks start going off, and now people are speaking in tongues, now people are prophesying, things are getting weird, things are getting crazy, and Paul's praying, it's like, wow, it's such a big deal. And you're reading this, and I was reading it, and I'm like, man, this is exciting, this is big, this is significant. And then verse 7 says it like this, and there were 12 people there. And I was just reading that, and I was like, wait a minute, I think he's, he, let me look it up in the Greek. That must mean 12,000. No, no, it just means 12. There were 12. And you're like, 12? Well, that feels kind of small, you know? That feels kind of insignificant. You know, maybe you've been hearing the pastors and leaders here talk about small groups all the time. You're like, small groups? I can't, you know, I just, I'm a significant, I'm an important person. I'm a busy person. I don't have time to get in somebody's living room and, and do a little small group. That's, that's small. I don't have time for that. Or, you know, like you volunteer, you serve, you hold the sign, you park the car. I don't have time. Those are small things. I'm a, I'm a big person. I need to do big things, you know? I don't have time for that small. Years ago, I remember we had uh, experienced some incredible growth as a church and we were expanding and a bunch of new people were coming in and there was this one individual, he was an older guy, he came to me, he said, he said, Justin, listen, uh, I'm new to the church. I said, oh, hey, it's great to meet you and everything. He said, listen, I know you've been talking about volunteering. You've been talking about joining a small group. He said, but listen, at my other church, you know, I was an elder. I was a, I was a, really, I was a really important person there. I was a pretty big deal. And, and, and so I'm just gonna skip all that. Just give me a big job. And I thought, I thought, mm, I'm not sure if I'm gonna. He left the church a couple months later, but um, he didn't realize that when God wants to do a big thing, he always starts with a small thing. When God wants to do a big thing, yeah, amen. He always starts with a really small thing. This is actually very important for us to understand because some of us are trapped in small things and we think it's small, not realizing that the small thing that we're trapped in is actually the seed of a big thing that God wants to do, right? And so God always starts with small things. You know, when God wanted to start a nation, he found an old man and an old lady and he gave them a miracle baby, right? And that was the beginning of Israel. That was the birth of a nation. When God wanted to deliver Israel from the Midianites, he found Gideon and Gideon assembled an army of 32,000 men and, and, and God said, no, that's way too big. Let's go with 300. 300? Yeah, 300. That's going to be fine. I'll do it with a small thing. When God wanted to save the world from sin, he didn't break forth in the clouds and come with the trumpets. Instead, he put a baby in a manger, just a small thing. And when Jesus brought the revolution called the local church, he left it in the hands of just 12 disciples. And he said, you guys, you're going to change the world, right? Small things. Now, all of those things became big things. But if you saw them in their beginning state, you would have never considered them significant. You would have looked right past them and said, that's way too small. It's never going to matter. See, as I was praying for you this week, as I was seeking Lord during the week, looking at this text, crying out to him, I felt like there's somebody here who is missing the big thing that God has for them because they're unwilling to engage in the small thing God's placed right in front of them. 
And so if you're here today waiting for a big thing, I think the Lord might be saying to you, engage in the small thing and watch me make it big in your heart and in your life. And so everything starts, amen, with a small thing. I heard somebody say recently, everyone wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. And I like that. So go ahead and turn to the person next to you and tell them, do the dishes, do the dishes. Do the dishes, do the dishes. Spiritual renewal never starts with the masses. It always begins with a few. It always begins with a few, and that's what we see in Ephesus, just 12 people seeking God. Just a small thing. A small thing can change everything. The other day, my wife Chrissy uh, left the house, and the oven was on. And uh, I got home, and the oven was on. I said, babe, the oven's on. And she said, oh, you know. And that kind of happens more often than I'd like to admit. And, uh, and I'm like, that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. You can't do that, you know. And, and, and so for me, it's a big thing. And, 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 you know, because just a small thing like that, you can start a fire, you know. But a lot of times, fires in homes, they don't start with ovens or, you know, uh, appliances. A lot of times, fires in homes, especially in other parts of the country, start just with an ember. Just a tiny little ember can, can go up to a mile, driven by the wind, drop on a pile of leaves or on your roof, and start an entire house fire. Just from a tiny little ember, a small little piece of coal or wood that's caught fire. Zechariah 4.10 says it like this, Do not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Do not, rejo- do not uh, reject these small things. Do not look past them and despise them because God's up to something. He's up to something. And so we join a small group. We have a little week of gatherings in the middle of our busy lives to seek the Lord this week. I remember years ago, I was 15. I was just, just really opening my life to Jesus and a friend invited me to their house for a prayer meeting. And it was a group of teenagers, probably 10 of us. And we would gather to pray. And we did this for over a year every week. And, and these prayer meetings changed my life. They weren't 10-minute prayer meetings. But we were 15, 16, 17-year-old kids praying for two and three hours. Like, that's weird, right? Like, that's not normal. If you have kids, I have a bunch of kids. That's not normal. That's not normal. Something was happening among us. And it looked like a small thing, but it ended up becoming a really significant thing, a really transformative thing in our lives. And I just want to say to you, what if right now the invitation of the Lord is not to be a part of some big thing, but just to engage in the unnoticed small things? And if you would engage in them now, He will do something in your life that is bigger than you ever imagined, says the Lord. I believe that's for somebody today. And so Paul spends three months preaching in the synagogue. This is interesting because it's not the pagans that become offended by Paul's preaching. That happens later. But what happens here is the first people to be offended by Paul's preaching are the religious people, right? The religious people are the people that are all upset about his preaching. So he ends up having to leave the synagogue and go rent a hall. And I start to ask myself, well, why are the religious people getting so offended by Paul's preaching? And the answer is obvious when you read the context around Acts 19. The religious people were offended by Paul's preaching because his preaching was a threat to their power. His preaching was a a threat to their power. He was preaching things that would make them relinquish control over the people. And as I began to examine Acts chapter 19, you know what I discovered? There's a theme that runs through the entire 
text. And so it begins with disciples who lack power, right? So he prays for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then the religious leaders are offended because they don't want to lose their power. And then extraordinary miracles happen through Paul where the power of God is transferred through handkerchiefs and aprons. And then finally, we see the seven sons of Sceva who go and try to use the power of God without knowing God. And then they're overpowered, right? And so through this whole thing, we see this thread of power. And so spiritual awakening begins with the few but then it requires a certain view, a certain perspective on life, and most importantly in this text, in this context, a certain perspective on power. Now, power is not something that we really talk about much when it comes to a philosophy of power or a perspective on power. And so I think if I asked most of us, hey, what's your view of power? We'd be like, I don't know. Like, I don't really have a, I haven't really thought that one through. I haven't really put language around it. And so we're surrounded by a history of humanity that shows us power being wielded for personal advantage, right? And so you think of the, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Caesars of the world, and you think of people using power to obtain more control, right? That the ultimate goal is to expand control. And this is one way that power has been used throughout all of history. It's one that we're all quite familiar with. Philosophers have tried to put language around this ambition. One of the more famous philosophers was Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher of the late 1800s. He said this about power. He said, our drives are reducible to the will to power. This is Nietzsche's perspective. The power, the will to power is the ultimate fact at which we arrive. Check this out. The world itself is the will to power and nothing else. And you yourself are the will to power and nothing else. So from Nietzsche's perspective, the human psyche has a thirst for dominance that changes and transforms every part of their lives and every relationship that we interact with, that life is a functional hunger games, that we're all vying for more power, for more authority, for more access, a primal conflict for power in which people are always looking to obtain more. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this true? Is this true? Is this what life is really all about? Getting more power, becoming more powerful, obtaining more, controlling more? Is that really the essence of life? Well, I think tragically, a lot of our experiences would say yes, that there are leaders all across the planet who are looking at life through the lens of power, right? Trying to expand their power, trying to control. This is done by religious leaders. This is done by political leaders. This is done by community leaders. All through, this is done by family members, right? Always expanding, always controlling. And so some of us assume power is always bad. Power itself is bad. It's corruptible. People who are seeking power are naturally evil. And so this is the world that we often look through. And so the seven sons of Sceva, they fit into that paradigm, right? Because here they do. They don't want to uh, follow Jesus. They don't want to obey the teachings of Christ. They just want power. And so they go out and they try to use the name of Jesus without relationship with Jesus. And what happens is actually a beautiful illustration, tragic, but in some ways beautiful, of what happens when a person thirsts for power completely. We're told that they are overpowered, beaten, stripped naked, and run terrified. In other words, if you are going to seek to control, if you are going to seek to grow your own power, if you are going to seek to advance self, the day will come where you will face a power that's greater than your own. And so, you know, most of us are not seeking global domination, but that broken perspective of power is actually at the root of why your marriage is so messed up. That broken pursuit of power is actually why you can't seem to have a relationship with your kid now that they're not babies anymore. That broken perspective of power is often at the root of why you don't have joy 
in your life because you're so afraid of being vulnerable. You're so afraid of looking weak. I'm talking to somebody. You're so afraid of being generous because if you're too generous, you're going to lose control. And if you lose control, you feel like you've lost power. And so oftentimes our view of power is suffocating the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because we have a wrong view. But Paul here in Acts 19 introduces a revolutionary perspective, and I want you to see it. A revolutionary perspective that is at the heart of the gospel. You notice that rather than being discouraged by the 12 people that are following Jesus, he's in this huge city, and he's only got 12 disciples in the beginning. He's not discouraged. Instead, he spends over two years there, right? And rather than holding on to power, Paul is constantly teaching the disciples how to access the power of God. And so Paul wasn't about hoarding power. Paul was about giving away power. And so Paul, rather than using power as a weapon to control, saw power as a conduit to express the love of Christ. Now, this is revolutionary. This is different. This is fundamentally in opposition to every concept of power that the world has to offer. See, the world says, grow your network, expand your platform, become a significant person so that you can control more. But God says that because of the gospel, the revelation of his love so fundamentally changes your heart that no longer do you need to control. Instead, you can begin to open your life. And power is not about me having more. It's about me giving more. You see it? What changed Paul? Oh, I pray that you would today. Lord, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the house. What changed Paul? Paul was a man like all others, seeking to control, power hungry. That's what we see Paul earlier in the text in the book of Acts, but something happens to him. He meets one more powerful than him. He meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He's knocked off his high horse and he's made blind. And the powerful one, Paul, is brought to a little one. I don't know if you know this, but his name used to be Saul, but he engaged after Christ in becoming known as Paul, which by the way means small. And so Paul became a man who was great. The name Saul was the name of the former king of Israel. He went from seeing himself like a king to realizing that he was small. And in the midst of his humbling, he discovered that there's one who holds all the power namely Christ, and yet that powerful one was made weak on our behalf so that by leveraging his power for us, he could make us powerful in him. You see it? And so the love of Christ transforms power. The thirst for absolute power can be changed by the truth of absolute love. And so Christ who came, died a substitutionary death for my sins, entered into death for me, and then rose from the dead, offers me forgiveness of sins and eternal life for free by grace. And when I receive the love of God, it gets into my heart and it changes me. And no longer do I need to hold on to power. No longer do I need to control everything. No longer do I need to puff myself up and prove myself. That insatiable need to be told that I'm valuable is deeply satisfied by the revelation of the love of God. Come on, somebody. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting. So the few and the view, right? The view, the perspective. Paul lived from this perspective. And that view, we're told, brought about extraordinary miracles. Extraordinary miracles. And we're told that handkerchiefs and aprons carried the power of God to the sick and the demon-possessed and they were healed. That's strange, isn't it? I think it's strange. Aprons and handkerchiefs. And I thought about that and I said, God, why would you do this? Why? Like, why? What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Well, there's always layers right? There's always layers. God's layers have layers, don't they? And so 
The handkerchief, that phrase, that word is used four times in the New Testament. But interestingly enough, in its other context, it's translated grave cloth, okay? It's translated grave cloth. It was the cloth. It wasn't like a handkerchief that went in your suit pocket, you know? It was a cloth that was wrapped around the head of a person who had died. And so when Lazarus, if you know the story in John 11, is risen from the dead, Jesus says, take that grave cloth, take that handkerchief off his face, right? When the disciples run into the empty tomb and they find that Jesus is resurrected, they get in there and they're told, Peter and John say, tell us that his grave cloth was lying there. That's his handkerchief. It's the same word, okay? Now that's interesting. It was a grave cloth. Now the Old Testament book of Leviticus tells us that if a healthy person touches the skin of a dead person, that healthy person is now considered unclean. They had to wash their clothes and remain outside the camp. So in the Old Covenant, the one who touched the one who died was made unclean. But the New Covenant, God is revealing his upside down kingdom. He is showing us that the weakness of God triumphs over the power of men and the foolishness of God outsmarts the wisdom of men. So if in the Old Covenant, those who touched the one who died were made temporary unclean. Now in the new covenant, the death of one, namely Christ, would make all who touch him eternally clean. And so it's the upside down kingdom. So Christ came and died, rose from the dead so that his death would be the door into our life. And so now Paul takes the grave cloth, Paul takes these handkerchiefs and passing them to the sick, it brings healing so that through death, we could experience life. Paul is teaching us that in this kingdom, it is the weak who are made strong. It is the small who are made big. It is the low who are brought high. It is those who are willing to die who actually truly live. Through his death, Christ brought life. And so let me give you some of that life. He's showing us through the handkerchief. But then he says there's gonna be some aprons too. The aprons were healing the sick. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear aprons, I think of like chefs or I love Lucy or like, like what, what is going on? Aprons, like why are we talking about aprons? If you look up that word apron, it's literally the garment worn by servants. So it's interesting that Paul's socks and t-shirts weren't healing anybody. Specifically, the text says it was his handkerchiefs and his aprons. Now, the handkerchief was the grave cloth because through death came life. But the apron is mentioned because it's a representation of a revolutionary view of power. That power is not transferred in God's kingdom through the scepter of a king, but through the apron of a servant. Huh. That those who are greatest among you will be the servants of all. He has fundamentally changed power dynamics within community by teaching us to serve and to come to him like children. And so the love of Christ, I'm talking to somebody today, has such power to rewire the heart that it changes our need to control. It changes our need to obtain. And it teaches us to live with an open hand in the arms of our Father. And this inward change, transformed by love, brings about a new power dynamic within a community called the church. And this may not be what you've experienced, this may not be what you've seen, but this has always been God's intention. It begins with the few, and then it has to experience the view. And from there comes the new. Look what happens again in Ephesus, verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus. A new power had entered there community, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practice. I want you to imagine this. This is hundreds of thousands of people. It's not like now a little thing. This has become a big thing. A number of those who practice magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value. They found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. He's picturing us 
a city transformed, a city renewed. What does it look like? Well, the first thing he tells us is that when a city is renewed, the name of Jesus is lifted up. The name of Jesus is magnified, which again is a beautiful picture of this upside-down kingdom because remember, Jesus never held political office. He never had a million dollars in the bank. He never had a million followers on Instagram. Jesus didn't have any of that. Jesus was a carpenter who died at age 33 and should have been forgotten a week later, but instead, everyone in this great city is worshiping him. The city that was really built up by a man named Alexander the Great is now worshiping the man known as Jesus the Weak. I mean, come on, the irony is not lost, right? It's a new idea of power, and so Jesus is revered. Jesus is extolled, and the people start confessing their sins, and they start bringing these books, these pagan ritual books that they have, and historians tell us that in our modern uh, currency, it's worth about $6 million in books. Now, this was not just some small event. At this point, this is thousands of people burning these books, saying, we don't believe this anymore. We don't want to follow this anymore. No one forced them to burn the books. We're not told in the text that there was like, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you have to burn all your books. Like, no, 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 no. That's not what happened. Instead, their hearts were changed. And what we're told is that the embers actually started to create a great fire. And from Ephesus, churches were planted all over the known world. Historians trace the churches in Sardis and Smyrna and Thyatira, Laodicea, Pergamum, and all across this region back to Paul's time in Ephesus, a church planning movement exploded from Ephesus and churches changing cities all across the community started when the few caught a new view and a community was born. Something unique. I remember years ago as a teenage kid, I was, I was reading a book about spiritual awakenings and um, I came across an account of what happened in Wales in the early 1900s when a uh, hundred thousand people opened their lives to Christ and joined the church in the course of nine months. Great spiritual outpouring. Many, many people turned their lives over to Christ and cities were changed. You think, oh, that's silly. That only happens in the Bible. No, 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 no. If you've learned anything in the last six weeks, it's happened through all of history and it's still available today. And so one account of this experience in Wales, here's what they said. One historian said, drunkenness was immediately cut in half and many taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished, check this out, that judges were presented with white gloves signifying that there were no cases of murder, assault, rape, or robbery, or the like to consider. Stoppages occurred in coal mines, not due to unpleasantness between management and workers, but because so many foul-mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul language that the horses which hauled the coal trucks in the mines could no longer understand what was being said to them. Come on, somebody. That's when you know you've got spiritual renewal. That's wild. That's crazy. And so Jesus was revered. The people start repenting. But then verse 20 actually holds the key to this whole thing. Verse 20 says it like this. It says, so the word of the Lord continued and increased and prevailed mightily. Now, you might look at verse 20 and go, that's a flyover verse. Let's go to the next one. Now, after these things, no, 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 go back. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's a little secret there. Because in Ephesus, that phrase meant maybe a little bit more than it means to us. See, Ephesus was famous for the teachings of Heraclitus of Ephesus. He was a philosopher that lived hundreds of years before Paul went into this area, and he spoke much about the word, or in the Greek, the logos, and that's the phrase 
that the writer uses here, the logos of the Lord. If you're familiar with that in the Bible, John uses it in John chapter one. And the word was made flesh and the word dwelt among us. And the word was God, the logos, the logos, the logos. Logos was a big idea for the Ephesians because his writings, Heraclitus's writings, influenced Plato and Socrates and all of Western philosophy was shaped by these ideas. And when, when Heraclitus spoke of the logos, he spoke of the truth that was beyond other truths. It was the deeper truth, the greater truth of life. And so by the time Paul reaches Ephesus, everybody knew about the Logos. Logos was a common understanding. And Logos had come to mean the collection of human wisdom, the greatest thoughts in the minds of men that when understood, gave a person power. So it elevated human reason, human understanding. And so the people of Ephesus were famous for the Logos, famous for having great learning, having great understanding, having reason beyond other communities. And so they thought of themselves as higher. And so so the writer here just sneaks it in and he says, well, what was happening in Ephesus was the logos of the Lord was increasing and prevailing over the philosophies of men. In other words, the thinking about the gospel, the truth of who God was, was superseding and overtaking the lies that people had believed about themselves and the world. It says it increased, right? It increased. That's an agricultural word. It means like a seed goes into the ground and grows over time, but then eventually it prevailed. That means had power over. And so it supplanted their own ideas. It changed their agenda. It shifted their opinion. It adjusted their desires. It gave them a new frame for reality. And that's what I've been praying for you and for me to experience over these six weeks. And as we continue into 2022, that now would be the time where the word of the Lord increases and prevails in your heart, where you stop believing that lie that your dad spoke to you when you were 10, where you stop living in that anxiety anxiety that's bound you up because of your unbelief or fear. You won't believe that thing about you that someone else said that someone else did. All those things that were spoken over you, all those things that the community of the culture around you has said over your life, the word of the Lord gets in and it starts speaking. It says, no, you're not rejected. You're loved. You know, you're not forgotten. You're remembered. No, you're not distant. You're close. There is a God who cares, a God who knows, a God who sees, a God who has a plan. And when his love starts to get into your life and the word of the Lord increases and prevails, all those insecurities that bind up all of us are overwhelmed, overtaken, and overcome by the truth of his love. And now power isn't about me controlling, it's about me giving and the word of the Lord prevails. Come on, somebody. The few and the view brought the new. And this story of Ephesus is not just an ancient historical account. It's a recipe for us presently. And it brings us all the way back to James chapter 4. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. We often think of revolution or change or transformation in our society or in our family. And we think, oh, it's got to be something big. It's got to be something significant. It is big and significant, but it doesn't start with some campaign. It starts in your heart. And I think, in fact, it's already started. Second Chronicles 7.14 says it like this, If my people who are called by my name, that's the few, humble themselves, that's the view, and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, says the Lord, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin 
and I will heal their land. That's the new. The few gather, their view changes. A new community is born. So that's what I'm believing for, for you, for me. I believe that now is a moment of transition. That this season right now, 2022, is a, is a moment where something is being left behind and something is being entered into. Recently, just with small groups that I've been in, I keep asking my friends and those close to me, I'll say, what are you leaving in 2021? And what are you stepping into in 2022? And I keep asking because I just, I believe that it's on the heart of God, that there's something that must be left behind. For some of us, it's an insecurity. For some of us, it's an offense. For some of us, it's a wound or a scar. For some of us, it's fear or guilt or sin that's been hidden for a long time. But something needs to be left behind. For some of us, it's just a distracted, small way of seeing life. For some of us, it's boredom. For some of us, it's discouragement. But something needs to be left behind and something needs to be picked up. And I believe God's doing that right now. That's why we're taking this last week to fast and this coming week to gather. Because something new is happening. We can't control it, but we can participate in it. Something new is happening. And so over these next six nights, beginning tonight at 7 o'clock, I just invite you to be a part. However the Lord would lead you. And let's leave some old things behind. And let's let some new things be born. Hosea chapter 10, sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. You remember this one? Break up your fallow ground. He's talking about the condition of your heart. Fallow ground is hardened ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness on you. I believe that's a word for us right now. Would you stand with me? Let's stand together. Take a moment, if you're comfortable, just to bow your head and close your eyes as a way to center yourself and focus your attention and use this moment as an opportunity for spiritual inventory. Have you grown cold? Have you been distracted? Has the word of God prevailed in your heart? Or do you find yourself today tangled up in insecurity or crippled by fears, weighed down by unforgiveness? or clinging to control? Do you find yourself just lukewarm? You need an encounter with Jesus. And I'm praying that this is the season that it occurs. An encounter with the love of God where you are undone by His beauty and his majesty and his kindness. You need him to walk into the room, arrest your attention. You know, when Jesus walked into a room, everything else stopped. 
he had a way of arresting people's attention. He wants to grab your attention right now. If you're here and you're not right with God, I want to invite you to come to Christ right now. Jesus Christ came as your representative and died as your substitute, fully God and fully man. The story of all stories. When he hung on that cross, he knew that you would be invited 2,000 years later at a church in Brantford to open your life to him. He knew that you would have this moment. And when he shed his blood, he did it for the remission of your sins so that forgiveness could be real in your heart, so that you could have a fresh start, a clean slate. You could be made new. And you could be accepted by God, not on the merits of your good deeds, but on the kindness and compassion of his sacrificial gift for you. <laughs> for all who receive him, the scripture says, he gives them the right to become children of God. But you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And so I just want to simply ask you today, are you far from God? I don't know what the details of your story hold. I don't know every nuance, every path you've been on, but if you're here and you're far from God, you don't have to be. You don't have to be. You can turn to him now in repentance and faith, experience the forgiveness of sins, and find peace with God. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm going to invite you, just on the count of three, to raise your hand if you're far from God and you say, I don't want to leave the room that way. I need to be at peace with him. I need to be reconciled. And on the count of three, you can just lift up your hand as a symbol, a physical symbol of your inner decision. Choose this day, the scripture says, who you will serve. I stand at the door and knock, Jesus said. Anyone who opens the door, I'll come in, I'll be with him. Would you open the door today? Would you open your life to him? Friend, if you're far from God, I just urge you, this is your moment. He offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. You got to give him the keys to your heart and you got to trust him. Take that step of faith now. One, two, three. If that's you, just stick up your hand. Just stick up your hand. God bless you. 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 The Lord sees that step of faith. You may put your hands down. I want to lead you in a simple prayer. And I invite you just to whisper this to God saying, Jesus, see me now. I turn to you. Tell him, I believe you died and rose again. Come into my life. Be the center of my life. Wash away my guilt and give me a new heart. Fill me with your peace. I put my trust in you. Now let me pray for you, Father. I pray for my brothers, for my sisters, that in this moment are coming near, drawing near to God. You said you'd draw near to them. I pray that even right now, you envelop them with your peace, that the presence of Jesus would become a tangible reality to them right now. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray right now for every believer in the house today, I pray that this is a moment of present renewal, that we would encounter afresh the love of God.
that you would undo our insecurities, that you would deliver us from our fears, that you would set us free from unforgiveness and you would enable us to relinquish control. I pray that even right now, as you walk into the room, that the presence of Jesus would cause those embers to glow afresh. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.